Hello to all you gas passers out there. Welcome to another episode of the NAVAS podcast, the official podcast of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society, sponsored by DECRA. Our mission is to help veterinary professionals and caregivers advance and improve the safe administration of anesthesia and analgesia to all animals. I am your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, and I can't believe we are already at the end of the year with our 12th episode. So here at the Navas podcast, we are wishing you your friends and your family, including your fur family, a Merry Christmas or a Happy Hanukkah or a Happy Holidays or just wishing you a wonderful end to your year and a huge thank you from us for sticking around and listening to us for an entire year. And if this is your first time listening, we hope this holiday season, you treat yourself to one of the best gifts that you can give yourself, knowledge and continuing education. Not only is it the holiday season, but it's also cold season and I am definitely recovering from a bad belt of illness. So if I sound a little bit more stuffy than usual, well, the holiday season and flu season often go hand in hand. Before we get into this episode, just a few housekeeping items. If you are enjoying the content from this episode, please consider supporting the podcast by leaving us a like or a review on whatever medium you choose to use to listen to podcasts and just simply tell a friend or a coworker to listen in. If you have any questions or topic suggestions, please write to me and the producers of this podcast at education at mynavas.org. We are always appreciative of any and all listener support. Next, we want to give our listeners a heads up that the Navas Virtual Spring Symposium will be held on April 27th and 28th of 2024. There is program content for veterinary technicians, general practitioners, and specialty veterinarians. Please visit the NAVAS website at www.mynavas.org to learn more about the program and the speaker lineup. So this month's episode is an expansion upon our previous episode on anesthetic induction agents with Dr. Xander Thompson. So if you haven't heard that episode, We will provide a link to it in the show notes so you can go back and listen if you're interested. However, this holiday season, maybe you want a new toy at your clinic, maybe a new anesthetic agent to add to your clinic's drug repertoire. Well, our focus today is all about the newest anesthetic induction agent on the block, Alfaxalone. Now, Alfaxalone is not necessarily a new drug And it's been around for a few years now in the North American market, so many people have heard about it. Despite that, maybe you aren't sure if your practice is ready to invest in this drug, or maybe you've had this drug at your practice already and you're wondering how to use this drug to its full potential. Well, if you've asked yourself any of these questions, this episode is just for you. For this episode, we are speaking with Dr. Lane Johnson, a clinical assistant professor of anesthesiology at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine to discuss all the facts about alfaxalone. We are going to talk about its history, its unique pharmacokinetic properties and side effects, 
why it's such a great drug for sedating and anesthetizing cats and bearded dragons, and why Alfaxalone has gotten its recent reputation as the best induction agent for small animals with cardiac disease. So should you purchase Alfaxalone for your clinic? How do you use Alfaxalone in the most effective and safest way possible? We hope to answer these questions right here on the NAVAS podcast with Dr. Lane Johnson. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm fine. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and briefly describing your past training and your current role? So I'm Dr. Lane Johnson. I'm currently an anesthesiologist at the University of Florida's College of Veterinary Medicine. I went to vet school at Mississippi State University. I did a rotating small animal internship at Texas A&M University and then did my residency training at the University of Tennessee. So I ask all of my guests this, what drew you to specializing in anesthesia? What's so great about anesthesia? So I have to kind of tell a little bit more of my background to answer this question. So when I went to college, I majored in biomedical engineering, and I did this with the intent of maybe going to vet school, maybe going to medical school. I ultimately decided I wanted to go to vet school. And I had been working in a general practice, you know, over the summer to get veterinary experience. And I really liked surgery there. I had no idea that veterinary anesthesiologists existed until I went to vet school. And of course, you know, being an engineering major, I liked biomechanics and things like that. And so I kind of thought, oh, maybe I want to be a surgeon. Sure. That makes sense. And then when I interacted with the anesthesiologist, I was always really impressed with how much they knew, how much physics they knew, fluid mechanics. I couldn't believe that they knew a lot of the things that I had learned in undergrad and, you know, in my engineering degree. And so then I kind of started thinking to myself, wow, well, this is really applicable to my degree. And it's a very interesting field. And then you get to work with, you don't have to subspecialize by species. You can work with large and small animal and exotics and everything. And so at that point, I kind of started changing my mind. And then I ultimately made my mind up during my internship year that I was going to go forward with, with anesthesia. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective because I don't think a lot of people who come on here say that the the original thing that drew them to to anesthesia was physics. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) But I will agree with you in the sense that I didn't know veterinary anesthesia was even a thing until I was in vet school. Yeah. So jumping into veterinary anesthesia, we're going to spend a lot of time today focusing on alfaxalone. It's our newest, it's not new per se, but it's our newest induction agent that we have available on the market. So as I just alluded to, it has been around for a long time. So could you start us off by telling us the story of alfaxalone and how it came to be in its current formulation? So it's kind of well-known in the anesthesia field, some of the history of alfaxalone. This drug, like you said, is not new. There was a formulation available like in the 1970s that was a combination of alfaxalone and alfadalone. And it was called, the brand name in veterinary medicine was called Safan. And Safan ended up being taken off the market because 
the excipient in the drug, which is basically a solubilizing agent. So it like helps the drug stay in solution. That agent was called cremophore and it was a castor oil derivative. And when they gave it to animals, it caused massive histamine release and allergic reactions. And so it ultimately was pulled from the market for that reason. So what that brings us to, they reformulated alfaxalone and replaced that previous excipient with a cyclodextrin, which would not have the histamine release problems that the cremophore did. That's our modern formulation of alfaxalone, which originally had no preservative and was called alfaxan. And it was released in other countries uh, long before it was in the U.S. I think we finally got alfaxan in like 2015 or something like that, maybe 2014 in the U.S., Mm -hmm. And then in the past four or five years, they released a formulation of alfaxalone called alfaxan multi-dose that actually does have preservative in it. And so when you breach the vial, it can be used for up to 28 days, which is obviously a lot nicer for people's pocketbooks and their inventorying and their clinics too. The preservative that's in the alfaxan multi-dose is a combination of things like ethanol and benzethonium chloride, which that, that's similar preservative formulation to ketamine. So you can, there shouldn't be those concerns with some of the other preservatives like with propofol 28. Yeah, we're going to get back to alfaxan multi, hopefully at some point. So when I started using alfaxalone, we didn't have the alfaxalone multi-dose. We just had the, the non-preservative formulation and it's my understanding that it's no longer made by Jerox, but uh, Zoetis, I believe, bought bought Jerox, or at least they bought Alfaxalone. Yeah. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so it's my understanding that they no longer manufacture the non-preservative Alfaxalone. That's my understanding as well, and and that's all we have is Alfaxalone multi-dose now. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's jump into a little bit about the pharmacokinetics of alfaxalone and what happens to this drug when we put it inside of our patients. What's the classification? Like, how would you classify alfaxalone as a drug? So structure-wise, it's a synthetic neurosteroid. As far as its mechanism of action, it's a GABA agonist. So similar to some of our other induction drugs, like propofol uh, and like atomidate. So when you give alfaxalone, it has a similar mechanism of action as propofol, at least to induce a state of unconsciousness and provide muscle relaxation. But what's its onset of action, especially compared to propofol? And how long are you going to see those effects from a single intravenous injection, at least compared to propofol? The onset of action is actually not too different from propofol. So if you go and look in in plums, you'll see that the onset of effect after a bolus should be within around 60 seconds. And usually intubation can be accomplished within one or two minutes, which is not too different from propofol. Now, if you give a single bolus dose of that drug, it will last longer in cats than it does in dogs. So if you give a single bolus dose of alfaxalone, you should expect that animal will probably be waking up from that bolus dose within five to 10 minutes, but with a cat, it might take a little bit longer, more like 15, 15, 20 minutes. And how is it eliminated from the body? And I'm asking this question because 
If you look classically at propofol, at least textbooks, sometimes you'll see things like propofol is better to use or more favorable to use in animals with liver disease because it has some, not all, but some extrahepatic metabolism. So what does the metabolism look like with alfaxalone? So alfaxalone is biotransformed in the liver, phase one and phase two type of metabolism, so cytochrome P450 and uh, conjugation. And this is true for both dogs and cats. There doesn't appear to be at this time any extra hepatic metabolism of the drug. So that's, you know, different than propofol, like you said. And we don't really have the clinical, I guess, knowledge to know how well it works in patients that have severe hepatic dysfunction. The thing with propofol is it's used a lot in humans. And so we can see that humans that have are having liver transplants, for example, due to liver failure, they can get propofol and not have any adverse outcomes from that. With alfaxalone, that, that's not approved for use in humans yet. I think that they are exploring that at this time, but we don't have a lot of data on using that in patients with severe hepatic dysfunction. And so probably still propofol would be your best choice in that scenario because it's more of a known quantity. But if you were going to use alfaxalone, you might would do some of the things that you would do with other drugs with patients with hepatic dysfunction, like decreasing the dose, for example. So since we're kind of on a path of comparing alfaxalone to propofol, what's the quality of anesthetic recovery with alfaxalone compared to other induction agents like propofol? So alfaxalone, most of the time the recovery is pretty smooth. However, you can have some muscle twitching, myoclonic movements, nystagmus has been reported as well. And I feel like in my clinical experience that that is definitely more common with alfaxalone than propofol. You can see that with propofol as well, but it's quite rare. It's more likely to happen with alfaxalone, but that being said, the recoveries are usually smooth with alfaxalone. That has also been my clinical experience. Sometimes I feel like the recovery from alfaxalone looks really similar to, not all the time, but sometimes can look really similar to the recovery with ketamine, especially in cats for some reason. I feel like I see it way more commonly in cats, but I don't know what you, what you see. Yeah. I would agree with that. But, you know, if you're depending upon what kind of setting you're working in, most of the time when we're recovering an animal from anesthesia, we're trying to make sure that most of those drugs are kind of off board by that time. I will say that I'm not a big fan of alfaxalone CRIs for that reason. I feel like the recoveries are not good with that. Yeah. So we can jump into that conversation because... There is a difference between alfaxalone and propofol when we talk about differences in the route of administration and also a little bit different in how animals kind of recover when we kind of spoiler alert, we already gave this away, but alfaxalone (laughs) kind of similar to propofol can be given as a concentrate infusion to maintain general anesthesia. But We'll get back into the into that in a minute, but there are differences when it comes to the route of administration. So I'll just leave it to you to talk about what the big differences are, at least between propofol and alfaxalone and how you can actually administer the drug to the patients. 
So everyone is pretty familiar with propofol by this point and knows that you can only give it intravenously. Whereas with alfaxalone, you can not only give it intravenously and treat it similarly to propofol in that regard, but you can also administer it intramuscularly for either premedication sedation intent or for full anesthetic induction intent. So what's the dose of alfaxalone if you're giving it IV versus if you're giving it IM in dogs and cats? So the dose, that depends on uh, people's personal preferences. I will say that the range for the intramuscular dosing, I feel like is a little bit wider than what we typically do for IV, but the doses are not terribly different. So for a dog or a cat, I would say for intramuscular, depending upon the size of the animal, we're usually talking one to four milligrams per kilogram. And then for intravenous dose, we're usually pulling up, depending upon how much pre-med effect you're, you feel like you're going to have. Like if you've given a heavier pre-med, you might draw up less. So I would say two to four milligrams per kilogram for IV. And then obviously when you are intravenously inducing an animal with alfaxone, you're giving that drug to, to effect similar to how you would use propofol. Yeah, that's a good point. We haven't gotten to side effects of alfaxalone, but it's definitely recommended that you give it slowly, kind of similarly to propofol. Yeah. And then back to the intramuscular injection, because I think this is a topic where people are really interested in alfaxalone. If you look at cats, a lot of times when we have to give intramuscular sedation to cats because they're not handleable or we just need to sedate them for a procedure or something like that, the classic drug combination to go to is like dexmedetomidine, ketamine, and butorphanol or buprenorphine or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, kitty magic. And so alfaxalone has kind of come on the market and challenged that a little bit. And so I kind of want to talk about using alfaxalone IM to sedate cats because I think it's, it's really where like a lot of peak interest has come from this drug. We're going to start with cats. So if you're going to use it intramuscularly in a cat, what are kind of your recommendations as far as what other drugs do you combine with it? Do you use it alone? How long can you see the effects if you're giving an IM? So just kind of like your general clinical picture of like what it looks like to use alfaxalone intramuscularly for sedation in cats. So alfaxalone is a nice tool to have to to give intramuscularly in cats. Combination-wise, first of all, I wouldn't recommend giving alfaxalone by itself. Why is that? There's been research that shows that it's really not, the sedation isn't as reliable and you're more likely to see some of those undesired effects like the muscle twitching and stuff like that. And if you combine it with another agent, you can hopefully kind of get a synergistic effect between the two where you get more efficacious sedation and and longer duration of sedation. So usually when when premedicating with alfaxone, I'll combine it at the very least with an opioid so if it's a non-painful procedure, would do something like alfaxone butorphanol, or if it's something where we, we add, need a full mu agonist opioid, that's a painful procedure, maybe alfaxone and methadone. And then dose-wise, it really depends on the size of the cat. So the thing about alfaxone and the reason it's such a big interest for cats is because cats are small. 
and alfaxalone is not very concentrated. It becomes kind of volume prohibitive in larger animals. Whenever you have a cat, if you have a really big cat, I try to limit the volume of the injection. So I kind of back calculate, honestly, to make sure I'm not going to give more than 10 milligrams, which is one mil of alfaxalone to a cat. But that that's me personally. You can obviously give more than that, but that's just trying to uh, limit that intramuscular volume of dose. Yeah, I find that I have com- I have done all kinds of combinations of alfaxalone with other agents, including dexmedetomidine. I've mm-hmm. used buprenorphine. The only agent I personally don't use with alfaxalone to sedate cats is midazolam. Yes. But I do, just because I don't really like to sedate cats with midazolam in general. However, I do know people who have done that successfully. I guess my only recommendation is that if you're going to do that, go high on the dose of midazolam. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I I totally agree with you. I don't like midazolam and cats. And I think midazolam is one of those drugs you have to be really cautious with your patient selection of who you're going to give that to. They're actually, this wasn't cats, but in dogs, there was actually a study where they compared alfaxalone and an opioid with or without midazolam. And when they added midazolam in, and this was in young, healthy dogs, it made the sedation worse. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. So, so, you know, a lot of people want to throw midazolam in there, but it's really probably not uh, always the best idea. But I agree. And there's been a lot of research done with alfaxalone in combination with things like ketamine and, and dexmedetomidine. And those, those combinations can be used very successfully, especially if you have an animal that restraint's going to be an issue, like they are very fractious, then alfaxalone plus dexmedetomidine in an opioid, I think would be a great choice. In really aggressive cats, there has been evidence, uh, successful evidence that you can use certain drugs transmucosally to induce sedation, things like ketamine, you can like squirt in their mouth at like (laughs) obscenely high concentrations. (laughs) Our alpha-2 adrenergic agonists as well mm-hmm. have been shown some efficacy with transmucosal administration. So if a cat's like hissing at you, you can like squirt in their mouth or something like that. <laughs> I doubt that has been looked at without Faxalon, but I wanted I know. to know if you knew anything about that. Right. So I couldn't find anything about that and, you know, have been looking at various routes of Faxalon, but that is something very interesting. And to your to your point about spraying the ketamine or the dexmedetomidine in the mouth of the cats. I have done that before. It's one of those things where it's not going to sedate them as it would an injection, but definitely something to keep keep in our back pockets. I don't see why something like like alfaxone wouldn't do that since it is also obviously highly lipid soluble. But yeah, I, I was unable to find any work that said that or confirmed that. What is your clinical impression of... How long it takes for cats to get sedate and with like alfaxalone combinations for sedation, intramuscular sedation. Mm-hmm. And so how long does it take them to get sedate? And then like, what is your opinion on the quality of sedation? So if you are just using an opioid and alfaxalone, it's probably going to take a little bit longer. Like I would wait at least 10 or 15 minutes for the peak effect. If you are giving more kind of a stronger combination, a cocktail of drugs like dexmedetomidine, alfaxalone, and an opioid. There have been studies that show that the sedation should be relatively quick with that. So probably five minutes, you'll see a good level of sedation. 
And then as far as how long it lasts, that is also dependent upon the, the agents that you combine with it. But probably you can get a good 20 or 30 minutes of sedation intramuscularly. It, but, it, you know, again, depending upon what you've combined it with, if you combine it with other agents, this could be extended to the longer edge of that range. But if it's just alfaxalone and opioid, probably the shorter duration. This is my clinical impression of alfaxalone. And just moving away from cats, just to include cats and dogs, I just find that the reliability of the sedation is not always there. It could be a combination of things. I feel like it could be that you're not getting like a true intramuscular injection. Like maybe you're injecting intrafat or like sub Q. Right. It could be that it's such a large volume that if you have like a wiggly, squirmy, angry cat that mm-hmm. you just like Don't can't get, get mm-hmm. all the volume in that you think you've gotten in. But I also just find sometimes that even if I feel like I've gotten a decent volume in that sometimes I don't see the quality of sedation that I, I really am hoping to achieve. And sometimes I have to give like more alfaxalone or I have to like switch gears and give something else. But we'll talk about in a little bit like why we still kind of jump on alfaxalone compared to other set of agents in a minute. But I didn't know if that was your clinical impression too. Yeah, I definitely agree with that clinical assessment of alfaxalone. You can't really tell what you're going to get sometimes from it. And I think, like you were saying, there are a lot of factors at play there. If the animal's already really stressed, then it's going to be harder to sedate them in general. And then, of course, absorption of the drug, which is a fair point to touch on because, you know, there have been some studies in other drugs that show that different muscle groups are have better perfusion and better uptake of the drug. And that certainly could be the case, you know, depending upon where you give your injection to the animal. Yeah. But, but I agree with you. So lots of times alfaxalone is one of those drugs that uh, you give some and then you have to go back and give a little bit more to get the effect that you want to be able to place your IV catheter or whatever it is you're trying to do, do your ultrasound. Yeah. And I also feel like sometimes I give it and like, I mean, this doesn't happen as often, but sometimes I'll give it and like two minutes later, the animal is like almost anesthetized. I've done that before or I've seen that before as well. So like alfaxalone, I still use it, but I just always have that like in the back of my brain that I might not see the level of sedation that I'm that I'm aiming for right. all the time. It's just not as predictable in my opinion. I totally agree with that as well. You know, it's when we use alfaxalone as a pre-med, kind of the philosophy is you should be prepared for induction. And I agree. Anytime you use something that is an anesthetic induction drug, you know, whether it be alfaxalone, propofol, if you're using those for sedation, you should be prepared for general anesthesia and have someone watching and monitoring that patient at all times. Because just like you said, sometimes... Who knows what happens? Maybe the animal's extra susceptible to the drug for whatever reason, or perhaps at some point during the IM injection, it actually went into a vessel and you can get a patient that's actually induced under anesthesia. That's why it's so important to be ready for that if it does happen and have someone who's constantly monitoring that patient after you've administered this drug. Because even though you're trying to use it for sedation, it's still an induction drug. And so it can anesthetize a patient. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good segue into talking about some of the pharmacologic effects of alfaxalone. So do you want to talk about what are the major respiratory clinical effects of alfaxalone? So alfaxalone has dose-dependent respiratory depression similar to other induction agents. If you give a large dose, if you give a dose very quickly, you can certainly cause apnea during the induction period. Yeah, and I have also seen apnea during sedation, which is really important too. And so you already alluded to the fact that if you're using alfaxalone at all, I always have somebody very closely monitoring that patient to make sure that they continue to breathe. To breathe, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It's important part of life. Uh Have have that tube and laryngoscope ready just in case. Yeah, 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 completely. It's recommended to give alfaxalone over 60 seconds. Is that right? Yes. If you're giving it IV. Do you ever do that clinically? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone does that clinically. You know, it's one of those things where you kind of have a dose in your mind, maybe like 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and you give that relatively quickly and then wait a few seconds and then give another 0.5 milligrams per kilogram and then wait, you know, 10, 15 seconds. watch for those clinical signs of unconsciousness and anesthetic induction, like the lying down, their head kind of becoming heavy, someone's having to support their head, loss of palpebral reflexes and relaxed jaw tone, things like that. So I don't know of anyone who say draws up three milligrams per kilogram of alfaxlin and just gives that slowly over 60 seconds. I don't think I've seen anyone do that. I don't know what your experience is. Not really. I think the classic way that if you're only using alfaxalone to induce with alfaxalone, I usually drop a two mg per kg dose. And I usually start with my aim of giving like half the volume. And I give it slow, but I wouldn't say I give it over 60 seconds. But generally right. speaking, I'm doing like a slow push until I'm starting to see the animal relax. Mm-hmm. And then I just intubate. And if they become apneic, I just always pre-oxygenate my patients. So if I do have difficulty intubating, I don't run into hypoxemia, hopefully. Right. And I just intubate and manually ventilate them if I need to. But one thing I have seen a lot of people doing with alfaxalone is combining alfaxalone with co-induction agents. Mm-hmm. And I think that st- that comes from the popularity of doing it with propofol. Like when I was in my residency, which was a while ago, people were super jazzed about combining propofol with midazolam to try to reduce the volume and therefore the total dose of propofol you're giving in an animal. (laughs) And the, the goal of doing that was thinking that, well, your respiratory signs or your, your respiratory and cardiovascular adverse offense with propofol are like dose related. So if we can like reduce the volume and therefore the dose, we can reduce these side effects. And so I have seen people combining alfaxone with midazolam to potentially offset maybe some of the respiratory effects of alfaxalone. And I don't know if you've come across anything in your research about alfaxalone or anything like that, that favors combining alfaxalone with, with midazolam in particular, but now even with ketamine. Right. It's very interesting because I feel like pretty much all of the co-induction studies that 
are out there with midazolam and propofol or midazolam alfaxlone don't really show any benefit, but people still want to do it, you know, even similar with ketamine, which I am not aware of if ketamine has been investigated for co-induction with alfaxlone for like the clinical effects. If I'm not aware if that's work's been done, but I know in propofol that that was shown to not really change the amount of propofol that you need necessarily. But you could argue there are other reasons to give ketamine, uh, even if you're using the same amount and that you get a sympathomimetic effect and increase your heart rate and hopefully have some compensation for the vasodilation that occurs with these drugs. But yeah, to say that you're giving a co-induction agent to decrease the dose is, hasn't really held up in the things that I've read. Yeah, people still really like doing it in clinical practice. And I think that it's because it was really popular like a few years ago and it was being recommended by the anesthesia community, I feel like. And also people, generally speaking out there, only have access to something like propofol. And when they have to anesthetize something that's like less than stable and you only have midazolam, like I think that's why people are kind of still doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair. Midazolam for all of its faults, it's minimal cardiorespiratory depression makes people want to use it a lot. Yeah, I agree. So moving back to alone, let's jump to the cardiovascular effects because I do have a lot of questions about this. So let's just start with, if you're giving like an intravenous dose of alone, what are the cardiovascular effects that you would expect in your patient? There are some things here, which we keep comparing it to propofol. There are some things here that are similar to propofol and then some that are a little bit different. Similar to other induction agents, you will see some decrease in afterload. So a drop in your systemic vascular resistance or vasodilation, basically. But unlike propofol, with alfaxlone, the heart rate's maintained a little bit better. Uh, So with propofol, you'll have that vasodilation and usually the, the, the heart rate does not have any compensatory increase for that. Whereas with alfaxlone, you could see a little bit more compensation with the heart rate, which could make your blood pressure stay a little bit more stable. However, that really depends on the dose and how quickly you administer it. These are all dose dependent effects, but you should expect some degree of drop in blood pressure and vasodilation from administration of alfaxlone. I feel like alfaxlone gets labeled as like the more cardiovascular safe right <laughs> induction agent and i will admit that if i have a cardiac case like for example if i have like a dog with mitral valve disease i'll sometimes use alfaxlone over propofol yeah but i feel like depending on the degree and severity of cardiac disease you could probably just get away with using propofol in a lot of these animals oh certainly but why do you think alfaxlone got labeled as like the more cardiovascularly friendly drug or induction agent? I mean, it's got to be the what I was saying about the heart rate and maintaining the blood pressure a little bit better. The interesting thing is that there was a study that compared when you actually administer both of those drugs as CRIs, the hemodynamic effects were no different from each other. So I think it really depends on how you're using the drug and how you're giving it. You can see very similar effects to propofol 
clinically speaking, but I, but I think it's just because that heart rate's maintained a little bit better and, and can uh, maintain your blood pressure a little bit better that it's gotten that, that label. Because especially for dogs with mitral valve disease, that would be a benefit to keep their heart rate a little bit higher. Yeah, I will say like I grew up in my residency in a time where we had an option between Atomidate and Alfaxalone. And for our listeners, Atomidate is another reduction agent that has been available for a long time. That's, that is like the classic cardiovascularly safe induction agent. Although I think there are some challenges to that idea now, but um, in any case, it was classically presented as like the cardiovascularly safe induction agent. And I would induce like a lot of my dogs with like severe cardiac disease. I would use out Atomidate and the induction quality is like awful with Atomidate. And so over the years, I just like, I don't use Atomidate anymore, period. Like if I do, even, even when I have dogs, I'm working with, with severe mitral valve disease or severe cardiac disease, I'm almost always using Alfaxalum because of that tachycardia that we talked about. I mean, sometimes it will cause tachycardia or at least it, it keeps the heart rate a little bit elevated compared to propofol, my clinical experience. But also the quality of induction is just like so much better. And there's something to be said for these dogs. Like if you have a really crummy induction, it increases your sympathetic tone and not necessarily beneficial for, for patients. But what are you typically using for induction for cardiac patients? Are you still using Atomidate to use Alfaxalone? Like what are you doing? Yeah, I don't use Atomidate very much anymore either, to be honest. And I feel like in my clinical experience, you know, the, the textbooks and all the literature tells you that it maintains the stroke volume and the vascular tone pretty well. But I find that it drops the heart rate a lot. Yes. Obviously, that's going to affect your cardiac output, you know, and it's, it's, and it's something that you don't want in patients that have valvular disease. You don't want bradycardia in those guys. That allows more time for the regurgitant flow to happen which is not what we want and could uh, precipitate, you know, faster heart failure, basically, or volume overload at least. So for that reason, I, and the the, st the stormy inductions with Atomidate, I agree. I tend to use more Alfaxlone now. I can't even remember the last time I used Atomidate, to be honest. I remember the last time I used Atomidate. You do? <laughs> the day I was like, I'm not using this drug anymore, which I don't like to do that, generally speaking. But I was inducing a dog with Atomidate and Midazolam for a PDA procedure. I think it was a PDA, some kind of like advanced cardi cardiac disease patient. Mm -hmm. And we induced the dog and the, and the dog's heart rate dropped into the 30s. Yep. And we had to do like, some minor, minor CPR and the doggers wanted to atropine. But at that point I was like, why am I using this drug? Right. What is the point now? Yeah. Like the induction was awful and now I'm finding a heart, like this low heart rate. So I think I, at that point I was like, I'm just going to use Alfaxalone. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of goes to the point back to when we're talking about sedation with Alfaxalone. And so, especially with cats, I feel like for me, and I'm just wondering where you stand on this, but we use so much, you know, kitty magic to sedate cats, which is like the ketamine dexmedetomidine combinations. Yeah. And there's so many cats with subclinical heart disease that if 
like I've just stopped using those combinations, meaning oh. like ketamine, dexamethasone combinations in, in older cats and started favoring alfaxalum. But I don't know what has been your experience. What are you doing? How do you approach sedating those older cats? Yeah, I agree with you. I don't, for a, a domestic cat, I, I will try my best to avoid giving it intramuscular ketamine for a pre-med. Because like you said, lots of them have subclinical cardiac disease, which in a cat is most likely to be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And if you give ketamine, you will get that sympathomimetic effect, which is going to have increased inotropy, increased heart rate. And that's the exact thing you don't want with HCM cats. And that's why I have never experienced this myself, but there are all of those horror stories about patients that have been premedicated with kitty magic and are found dead from their premedication, just because of the ketamine, most likely. Because we know that, you know, the opioids not going to be an issue and that alpha-2 agonists for cats with HCM is actually, they, those are actually beneficial by increasing the afterload and dropping the heart rate. But, but ketamine, yeah, I, I try just because of that. I, I try not. To. It's a risk versus benefit thing. And we have other drugs now, like you said, like alfaxalone that can kind of take the place of ketamine that are not going to cause those issues. So I remember reading somewhere that at least for the multi-dose vials that have the preservative in it, that Occasionally, the preservative that's in alfaxalone can precipitate with certain types of adjunctive agents. And so do you see that clinically? Do you give your alfaxalone, your multi-dose alfaxalone separate from your other drugs? Do you mix them all together? What do you do? Yeah, so the label says that you should not mix them, that you should give alfaxalone separately from other drugs. And I've certainly heard reports of some degree of precipitation when you mix it with various things, like especially, I feel like midazolam is a classic example of something that kind of precipitates with alfaxalone. That being said, most of the time when we are giving alfaxalone, we're most of the time starting out, unless it's a really bad, a case that needs extra, extra premedication. We're usually just doing an opioid and alfaxalone and we, we mix those together. I don't know what, what's your personal experiences with that, but. I think it's that I usually give alfaxalone separate and it's only because I don't want to be surprised if something precipitates when I'm mixing it and then I have to go through the whole. Right. It's like purely laziness. Like I just don't want to have to go back and like, if it does precipitate. Redraw the drugs and do, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I oftentimes will tell staff to give it separately and it's also on the label. So mm-hmm. it, I, I understand if people, if you have experience already mixing your drugs and they don't precipitate, that's, that's, that's excellent. I would say like for a really good example also is like buprenorphine. So there's so many different like concentrations and formulations of buprenorphine that I can, ne- I, I work in a lot of different practices. So I never know like which type of buprenorphine I'm dealing with. So yeah. that's a great example of a drug. I just, I always always give, if I'm going to give buprenorphine and alfaxalone, I'm just getting intramuscularly. I'm just giving them separately. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's definitely, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of, again, uh, risk versus benefit. If you, if you think you're only going to get one shot with a cat, for example, then it might be worth mixing them and then see if you see any precipitation. And then obviously if you do, you have kind of got to regroup from there. 
but otherwise, yeah, I think it's it's best case scenario to follow the label as as close you, closely as you can for sure. So since we're basically spending a lot of time comparing alfaxalone to propofol, propofol is not considered a controlled drug, at least federally. I know right. in different states, some states will some states treat it control. Yeah, mm-hmm. correct. What about alfaxalone? Is that a controlled drug? Yeah. So alfaxalone is considered Schedule Four substance. So it's it's a lower grade than ketamine, which ketamine's three. So it's more in the I think butorphanols Schedule Four as well. So it's pretty low down there, but it is considered a controlled substance. And like you were saying, like comparing it to propofol, propofol is not federally controlled, but lots of states treat it that way. What about the costs of alfaxalone versus propofol? Because I do think alfaxalone has its place, as we've discussed, sedation. It has a, a really nice place, at least in our sedation repertoire for cats in the pre period. But I do get a lot of pushback from some people who are interested in using alfaxalone that, that it's just really expensive. So in your experience, if we're going to be comparing like a cost per mil or something like that of mm-hmm. alfaxalone versus propofol, like, do you think that it's similar? Do you think alfaxalone truly is more expensive? Like, what's your experience, at least from where you work currently? Yeah, the- First of all, yeah, disclaimer that where people source their drugs from apparently factors heavily into this. So I actually did speak with uh, our pharmacist about this and asked her what we pay for these drugs. And she told me that as far as propofol, which remember, there are two formulations of propofol still available. There's propofol non-preservative, like original propofol, and then there's propofol 28. Whereas with alfaxalone, they've eliminated the preservative free and it's only alfaxin multidose. So propofol by itself, like no preservative propofol, propoflow is the brand name, is pretty cheap. So we can get that for about $10 per vial. Whereas with propofol 28 and alfaxin multidose, those are more expensive, you know, about three times as much as that. But it can be arranged. So depending upon supply chain things and other stuff that I don't understand, the dose range for those drugs can be anywhere from $30 to $75 per vial for those. Whereas propofol, regular propofol is quite cheap. So it's probably why a lot of clinics still stick with just the, the original. But if you're talking about propofol 28 versus alfaxalone multidose, Seems like it's going to be kind of similar on a per milliliter basis because we only buy the small vials of both of those. You could almost argue that it's going to be kind of a wash because your dose on a mig per kig basis of alfaxalone is lower than propofol. So you could really get into the weeds with that and kind of look and see how much if you wanted to do do a trial, you know, get a few vials of the drug and kind of compare and see how many mils of each you're using and and kind of compare them because it could turn out, depending upon how much you're paying for each drug, that they will be very similarly priced between propofol 28 and alfaxin multidose, or you could even come out a little bit uh, ahead with the alfaxin multidose. However, acknowledging that original propofol is going to be much cheaper, about a third at least a third of the price, if not more, of both of those drugs. 
Yeah, I don't think you can beat the price of like or OG propofol. Yeah, OG propofol. And ketamine. <laughs> and ke- well, yes, and ketamine also very cheap, very cheap. Yeah, those drugs have been around for a while, so they have lost their patents. So I feel like they are a bit a bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about cases whereby you would absolutely consider using alfaxalone and then maybe any cases where you would absolutely avoid using alfaxalone. So a case where I would, I with high confidence, probably be using alfaxalone. Um, and are you talking pre-med or are you talking induction or both? Both. Both. Like a case where you'd be like, yes, I'm going to use alfaxalone for this animal. Yeah. So definitely the, the first one that pops into my head is a cat with a heart murmur who I have no idea what kind of cardiac disease it has. That's no uh, cardio workup because, you know, playing the odds, a cat with a murmur probably has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but I have seen cats with valvular disease before. So trying to be as safe as we possibly can, I wouldn't want to pre-medicate that patient with dexmedetomidine in case it is one of those weird cats that does have valvular disease. And I wouldn't want to pre-medicate it with ketamine in case it has HCM. So I would go with alfaxalone and probably an opioid for pre-medication and induction in that case. So that's kind of like the classic case or, or patients that are older and have documented cardiac disease. That's kind of the cases where I tend to reach for alfaxalone over propofol or ketamine, for example. And then for the ones that I would not use it for, something requiring TIVA or total intravenous yeah. anesthesia, I would not use alfaxalone because those recoveries are, I don't like them at all. And then, well, this is outside of the realm of dogs and cats, but large animal horses, I would not use alfaxalone. I have actually tried it before and I was not very happy with the results. And there are studies that show the recoveries not great with alfaxalone. So speaking of other species you can use alfaxalone in, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you is because you have done or at least assisted with certain studies looking at alfaxalone in exotic species. And so are there other species where like beyond dogs and cats, and I guess beyond horses, whereby alfaxalone would be beneficial to include as part of the sedation or induction protocol? Yeah, so since you can give alfaxalone intramuscularly, it, it's very popular for some other species, exotics, reptiles in particular. I like using alfaxalone in reptiles. Uh, like you alluded to, I did a study and wrote the grant, did all the stuff for bearded dragons and intramuscular alfaxalone. And if I have to sedate a bearded dragon, I would use alfaxalone for sure. And of course, there have been lots of studies using alfaxalone in various species of snakes and uh, chelonians or, you know, turtles and tortoises as well. Very successfully, intramuscularly and intravenously can be used. And then also small mammals. There have been several studies in rabbits, for example, using intramuscular alfaxalone for premedication and you know, some people are still kind of scared of it, but all of the studies have shown that it usually works very well and they didn't have any problems with the animals in their studies as far as apnea or things like that. However, that is still always a risk and going back to that. And you should always um, treat your anesthetic induction agents with respect that they deserve. I haven't anesthetized a rabbit in a while. 
I think the last rabbit I did was like a year ago, but I really like using like a big per keg of alfaxalone intramuscularly with like a half a big per keg of midazolam. And I've done that now for at least like, I want to say I've done that for at least like somewhere between eight to 10 rabbits. Mm -hmm. And I, I really liked the sedation and I did not see apnea with that combination. But I also would say that the rabbits that I was using that with were pretty healthy. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lower dose than what they use. So that's the other thing is with exotics, they tend to use much higher doses, which makes sense with allometric scaling, I suppose, you know, the smaller the creature, the higher per pound or per kilogram body weight, the dose that, that an animal requires is, is that's what that means. So for, like for the bearded dragons, for example, we were giving 10 milligrams per kilogram IM, which is much more than I would ever give to a dog or a cat. There are some studies in rabbits where they do like six migs per kg or eight migs per kg and things like that too. So I would be very shocked, you know, if you're giving one or two migs per kg and then a rabbit got apneic, I would be, I'd be very surprised by that. Do you like to use alfaxalone in rabbits? Like, is that kind of something that you've done before? I have done it before. I have not done it at UF because whenever we're working with rabbits, we're kind of working in combination with our zoo med department and they are not big fans of alfaxalone for that reason of apnea and being worried that uh, that animal would not be able to be intubated. And I think that they have had some bad experiences in the past with that. So I try to respect that and do things that are a little bit more comfortable for them. So most of the time when I'm pre-medicating a, a rabbit, it's going to be probably an opioid and maybe a little bit of ketamine if I if they need that. And then inducing intravenously with whatever combination, you know, ketamine, midazolam or something like that, where you can try most try to avoid apnea. I have given intramuscular alfaxalone to a rabbit when I was locuming. I've, I've done that before and I was really happy with it. But like similar to you, I used kind of that lower dose, two mg per kg or less. I can't remember the exact dose, but it wasn't anything too high. And I, I was very happy with it. And we were able to place an IV catheter and finish our induction intravenously that way. If you give like 10 mgs per kg of alfaxalone to a bearded dragon, like how long are they staying like asleep for? <laughs> or unconscious for? <laughs> so usually like the ones in our study, they were all recovered by two hours, which for a reptile's Pretty good. Uh, and as you know, uh, you've worked with a lot of reptiles that anesthetic recovery and sedation recovery for reptiles, they just do everything slower, right? right? But the nice thing about alfaxalone is that all of the, the animals that we worked with, they all recovered within a two hour period, some much shorter than that. But I would say one to two hours, two hours being like the longer end of the spectrum. And when I say recovery, I mean that they are able to They've regained their writing reflex, which means they can flip themselves over and they can hold their, their heads up, basically. Do you think that, I don't know if your study assessed this, but would intramuscular alfaxalone be enough to do like a minor surgical procedure on, one of, on a reptile? I mean, maybe you'd have to give like an opioid on top of that or something like that. But what's your clinical impression of that? You might be able to. Yeah, you would definitely have to combine it with an opioid because... And I don't, we didn't mention this before, but alfaxalone does not have any analgesic properties. So if you're doing anything painful, you definitely need to add in a good analgesic agent. So if you combined that 
with yeah hydromorphone or morphine or whatever you like in your um, reptiles, you probably could accomplish something that would be relatively quick. Like say you were doing a like a tiny little minor mass removal that's going to take you less than 20 minutes or so. Then I say you could do something like that probably, but it really depends because like with our study, we combined some other things with the study that we um, still are working on publishing those parts of the results. Like we did echocardiograms. So you can definitely use that drug to accomplish non-painful diagnostic procedures like radiographs, echoes, things like that. We also did tracheal washes and cloacal swabs as well. So all of those things were able to be accomplished. But if you were going to do something more surgical, you would definitely have to have at least an opioid on board. If you were going to do a longer procedure, I would just continue on like pre-med them that way. You might be able to either place an IV catheter and finish induction that way, or you potentially could intubate them and finish kind of finish the induction with inhaled anesthetic as well. So I kind of want to wrap up our conversation by just asking you, in your opinion, if a practice was weighing the cost and the benefit of whether or not to carry alone, you know, what would you recommend as far as, you know, what are the benefits versus the cons, I suppose? And you know, I guess which types of practices or under which circumstances would it be beneficial to carry alone at your clinic? So I think it definitely would be beneficial to practices who are doing a lot of uh, cardiac procedures like specialty hospitals that do some of those more advanced interventional things, PDAs, stuff like that. And also, if you are in a practice where you see a lot of cats. I think if you, especially if you're a feline practice, I think it would definitely be worth it to have alone. And then places that see a lot of small mammals and exotics, I think that would be a good choice as well. And especially reptiles. I, I think alfaxalone is a good choice for, for a lot of those guys too. Yeah. I usually recommend to some clients, like if they're unsure about it, maybe ordering like a very small amount and trying the drug and maybe limiting what type of patients you're using it for. So like if you are a practice that's doing dentistry, for example, and you have like old, decrepit, Mm -hmm. white dogs. Yes, that all have heart disease. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And you're anesthetizing them for dentals. You know, it might be nice to to use alfaxalone, but probably before you decide to use it on that like old decrepit thing, try using it on a small breed, healthy dog and seeing what it looks like. So you can get familiar with it before you're using it for a little bit of, of like a decrepit dog. But I feel like you can get away with like special ordering it sometimes if you're not a practice that falls into like one of those things that you've just recommended. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, That's true. Oh, yeah. If you were going to summarize alfaxalone like in one sentence, what would you say? Like what would be like your sentence? Yeah, I guess I would just say that alfaxalone is similar to propofol, but has an intramuscular option and more heart rate stability or stimulation. I tell people it's clear controlled propofol. <laughs> and if that's true, the controlled part, that's good. <laughs> but the stuff you added on in the ends is actually really important. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want to, I, I mean, 
You hit the nail on the head, though. I mean, it's definitely when you're using this drug, it shouldn't feel like too alien. You can use it in very similar ways to propofol. So if you're used to using propofol, it shouldn't be too scary to use this drug. The only caveat being if you're using it for sedation, which I think that is a great strength of this drug is the fact that you can give it intramuscularly, but you have to treat it with the respect it deserves. Oh, well, that is a really nice way to end everything. So (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting with me all about all the facts about Alfaxalone. Of course. Have a great one. If you like what you heard today, I encourage you to check out NAVAS and consider becoming a member. As a member of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society, you get tons of benefits, including access to CE events, focusing on anesthesia and pain management, blog posts, fireside chats with boarded anesthesiologists, as well as specialty technicians, and just so much more. Visit www.mynavas.org to advance your anesthesia journey today. Also, if you are feeling generous this holiday season, consider a donation to the NAVAS Educational Fund. This NAVAS Educational Fund strives to improve anesthetic and analgesic care of veterinary patients by providing continuing education to veterinary professionals and caregivers. Learn more at www.mynavas.org donations. As a reminder, the NAVAS Virtual Spring Symposium will be taking place on April 27th and 28th of 2024. More information, including the speaker lineup and topics that will be presented are available now on the NAVAS website. To learn more about the NAVAS Virtual Spring Symposium, visit www.mynavas.org slash 2024-spring-symposium. If you have been listening and enjoying this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would give us a like or subscribe to our podcast, write a review, or simply just tell a friend about this podcast. We appreciate any and all listener support. If you have any questions about this week's episode or the Navas podcast in general, or if you want to suggest topics you would like for us to discuss in future episodes, please reach out to us at education at mynavas.org. We would love to hear from all of you. Also, a huge thank you to our sponsor, DECRA, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Visit their website, www.decra-us.com to learn more about their line of veterinary anesthesia products. This podcast was produced by Maria Bridges, edited by Chris Webster of Chris Webster Productions, and technical support was provided by Saul Jimenez. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Lane Johnson, for this insightful discussion on alfaxalone. And lastly, a huge thank you to all the gas passers out there who choose to spend their time with me today on the NAVAS podcast. Becoming a skilled anesthetist is a lifelong journey of learning and self-discovery, so I hope you consider listening in the future. I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, and thank you for listening. We here at the NAVAS podcast are wishing you a very happy holiday season, and we hope you continue tuning in next year. Mm-hmm.